I hope you uh, picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you uh, came in. As you're turning the notes, let me also encourage you, uh, please be praying for our military community right now. I know uh, we've had a number of soldiers from our own church uh, recently deploy, so we want to be uh, regularly praying for them, uh, that God would protect them and bring each of them back safely and uh, meet the need of their families uh, in their uh, absence. Of course, we're in a uh, sermon series now entitled, Excelling in Our Love for One Another. And as I shared with you before, the reason I believe God uh, led me, motivated me to uh, move in this direction is uh, two things. Uh, Number one, it gives me an opportunity to express my appreciation uh, to this church family and to affirm you. As I've uh, shared uh, in several of the messages, uh, what I am preaching in this series, you have taught me. Uh, You have lived what I am preaching, and I am the better person for it. And uh, many of you have been wonderful models, examples for me. And God has used you in my life uh, to challenge me and to spur me on in my walk with God, and especially in this area of loving uh, one another in the body of Christ. But also, it's a challenge that we're to excel even more in this love. I praise God for what He's done in this church family. And again, not that we're perfect, not that we haven't had our uh, missteps and, uh, and falls, but, uh, but God's been faithful and uh, God's done a wonderful work here, and I'm so thankful for that, but we want to excel uh, even more. And uh, we're at Lesson 6, uh, which is Maintaining Unity in the Body of Christ. And our passage is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And what we're doing in this series is taking a very simple approach. Uh, We're just taking the uh, one another passages in the New Testament. And we're just walking through those one another passages in the New Testament to learn how we are to love uh, one another. And this passage in Ephesians 4... uh, The focus is how to maintain unity in the body of Christ. Now, if you have your notes, last week uh, we had the Lord's Supper service. I had very little time to preach. And so all I basically did was introduce this message, and we covered the first side of your sermon notes. And then the second side is what we'll be focusing on today. But I do want to just begin... Uh, And I'll do this very quickly by just sticking to the uh, text in the sermon notes. But look at that illustration of unity. That first page of your sermon notes, about midway down. Uh, Let me begin there in terms of review very very briefly, and then we'll make the transition into the uh, primary text of Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Last week we looked at Psalm 133, an absolutely magnificent a psalm that talks about the preciousness of unity. And we saw there that in Psalm 133, you see in your sermon notes, unity there is likened to the dew of Mount Hermon. Remember we said Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in the Middle East, and it stays uh, snow-capped year-round. And because of that and uh, other atmospheric conditions, uh, it creates these plentiful dews. It's like a, a... Every single day, like it's been a mammoth rainfall, and it's just uh, created all sorts of fertility and and plant life, animal life. 
And so uh, we saw there that uh, unity is likened to the dew of Mount Hermon, which literally transformed Mount Hermon into an oasis in the middle of a wilderness. Because this mountain literally sits in the middle of a wilderness. And it's sort of like an anomaly when you see the fertility there, when you see the life uh, that, is, that is there. Uh, the point being, wherever God's people dwell together in unity, God's presence will cover their community transforming it into an oasis where people experience the life-giving power of Christ. Since dew only forms when atmospheric conditions are just right, known as the dew point, we must ask, well, what are the atmospheric conditions that need to exist uh, before the dewdrops of unity will form on a church before we become drenched in the presence of God. And of course, we said last week the answer is found in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 3, where we discover seven attitudes of unity. These seven attitudes, this is the atmospheric condition that must exist to promote, to preserve unity, where we'll know in a remarkable way God's blessing to be a blessing to others, to be an oasis in this wilderness of a world to uh, give others the life-giving power of Jesus. Now that passage reads, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul writing, he's in prison as he writes this, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, with which you have been called. And how do we walk worthy of that calling? He says, he gives seven things. With all humility, there's the first attitude, and gentleness, there's the second. With patience, there's the third. Showing tolerance, that's the fourth attitude. For one another in love, love is the fifth. Being diligent, diligence is the sixth. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And there's the seventh attitude. Now, that key observation, and then we'll move right in uh, to the passage. In our last lesson, that goes back to Galatians uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we learn there that bearing one another's burdens is synonymous with fulfilling the law of Christ, where in today's lesson we learn walking worthy of our calling in Christ is synonymous with maintaining unity in the body of Christ. But sadly, we can walk unworthy of our calling if we do not make every effort to safeguard the unity uh, that Christ died to obtain. And we saw that last week. We cannot create unity. This is a gift that was given to us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, a gift that we are commanded to jealously guard, uh, to preserve to ensure that nothing comes between us and God. Nothing comes between us and one another. But we're diligent uh, to preserve that unity because it's through that unity that people see the authenticity of Jesus Christ in our lives. And it's that authenticity that provides our credibility as we present the gospel to a lost world. So... uh, Let's look now at the seven attitudes of unity. We're on the back side of your sermon notes. And the first one is humility. Humility, and you'll have this on the overheads as well. Humility, which creates a caring attitude that dissipates selfishness and promotes kindness toward others. So the first attitude that's mentioned, 
is humility, which creates a caring attitude that dissipates selfishness and promotes kindness towards uh, others. Now, the important truth to see here is that humility is the root for the six other virtues mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. In other words, humility is the root, and all these six other virtues are the fruit that grows from that root. And so, humility is crucial. If we miss here, we miss everything. And let me just go a step further. Humility is the greatest evidence that a person has truly come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And let me explain why. The word humility in our English Bibles is actually a combination of two words in the Greek text. The first word is tapanos, which means something low as opposed to something high. The second word is phroneo, which means to think or to judge. So humility is to think of yourself as low in relationship to Jesus Christ. Amen? So humility is bowing before the risen Savior and saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. Humility is bowing before the exalted Lord and saying, what saith my Lord to his servant? Humility is bowing before the infinite beauty, majesty, and worth of Jesus Christ and saying, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. In other words, to see Him is to truly get on your face before Him and to surrender to Him. But humility not only impacts the way I think and relate to Christ, it also should impact the way I think about and relate to others. Matter of fact, the greatest proof of your humility with Christ is expressing humility to others. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples after he washed their feet? That night he was betrayed as he instituted the Lord's Supper. You, me- you remember they, they were eating the meal together? And you remember what happened? It's, it's amazing. He's about to go to the cross. And they start arguing about who's the greatest. You know, who's the best? Wanting, you know, that top spot of prestige, uh, position, and, uh, and, and authority. And, you know, they're arguing. Jesus doesn't say anything. He stands up. He removes his robe. He goes and gets a towel and a basin of water. And one by one, he washes the feet of every single disciple, which was a task relegated to the most lowly of all slaves and servants. And then this is what he said to them. You just listen. This is in John 13, verses 12 through 17. It says, So when he had washed their feet 
and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, the point Jesus is making is absolutely too obvious to miss. If Jesus, the sovereign creator of all that exists, God himself, come to the world in human flesh, the Lord of lords and King of kings, if Jesus humbled himself to wash his servants' feet, then how can his servants claim to be following him if they do not humble themselves to wash one another's feet? See, in God's kingdom, the greatest are not the ones who obtain some sort of lofty position or title or those who exercise great authority. The greatest are those who take up a basin and a towel and wash people's stinking feet. By the way, what's the opposite of humility? pride. Look there in your notes at Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. This really wonderfully drives the main point home here concerning humility as we relate to one another. And uh, by the way, this will be our primary focal passage next Sunday, because it's another, you'll notice, one another passage. Uh, But it beautifully expresses the very essence of humility towards others. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Don't do anything with a desire to promote yourself, to get the applause of men, to be noticed. But with humility, and that literally would read, as we just noted, with lowliness of mind, let each of you regard one another, as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. John Stott, the great Bible teacher, was right when he wrote, Humility is essential to unity. Pride lurks behind all discord. While the greatest single secret of concord, of unity, is Humility. And remember, God resists the, and He gives grace to the humble. That's why humility is the root of the other six virtues. As I humble myself before God, then and only then will He give me the grace to develop and grow in these next six virtues, and let's go to the next one, 
and that is gentleness. Gentleness, which creates a controlled attitude in heated situations. Now, I should have said this at the beginning, but let me just mention this very, very quickly. Hopefully, you're making application. But, of course, we're applying this to uh, relating to one another in the church family. But, folks, this truth today, boy, it relates to all interpersonal relationships. This is a great lesson for marriage, for families. It's just a wonderful lesson on this personal relationships period in any realm of life to preserve harmony and unity. So I trust as we go through, God will make application where it needs uh, to be made. Uh, Proverbs 15.1, you see there, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, I don't need to linger long here because two weeks ago, when we were looking at Ephesians chapter, I'm sorry, Galatians 6, verses 1 through 6, we found that word gentleness. You remember? We're to restore that fallen brother or sister with a spirit of gentleness. And at that time, uh, we defined this uh, particular quality. But let me quickly remind you what we discovered. The Greek word, and this is fascinating to me, the Greek word was actually used of taming a wild horse. And, of course, a horse that becomes broken or tamed, that horse does not lose its strength. Its temperament is not necessarily altered, but it is brought under the control of its master. Therefore, gentleness could be defined simply as strength under God's control. The whole of my life, my temperament, my personality, my resources, my gifts all under God's control. See, a gentle person, listen now, a gentle person has been tamed by God, broken by God, subdued by God. A truly gentle person has surrendered his will, all his rights, all his expectations in life or in interpersonal relationships to God. As a result, a gentle person no longer uses his strength, no longer uses his resources to serve self, but instead to serve God and others. And we saw two weeks ago that the greatest quality of a gentle person in relating to others is that he has absolutely no interest in taking sides when there's division and factions. He only has one heart's desire, and that is for God to take over. And he has no interest in winning an argument with a brother or sister, but winning the brother or the sister, preserving the harmony in that relationship. And this enables that gentle or that meek person to stay calm, to stay very controlled in very difficult and heated situations. Now, we said that pride is the opposite of humility. Well, let me ask you, what would be the telltale sign that you're not walking in an attitude of gentleness? Anger, uncontrolled anger, blowing up, or even clamming up, they're equally bad. Frustration, because you've released all your rights and your expectations. 
You find your satisfaction in God, not in people, not in circumstances. So frustration, quarrels, disunity. You know, this next verse is not in your notes, but listen to how James 4 reads from the paraphrase, the message. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. So may we all pray. May we all pray. Lord, tame me. Lord, break me. Lord, subdue me. Lord, control me. Teach me your gentle heart and your gentle ways. Look at the third attitude that promotes or preserves unity, and that is patience. Patience, which creates a conciliatory attitude that never seeks revenge, but always seeks peace. Patience, which creates, as you see on your overhead, conciliatory and a conciliatory attitude that never seeks revenge, but always seeks peace. The word translated patience is very, very uh, interesting in Ephesians 4. It's macrothomia, and it's a compound word, which literally means to be long-passioned, to be long-suffering, to be slow to anger, patient with people. Uh, Chrysostom, an early church father, made this comment. He said, it is a word, referring to this word patience, as it's used in the New Testament. It is a word that, which is used of the man who is wronged and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself, but will never do it. See, to be patient, therefore, is to practice non-retaliation. To choose in human relationships never to get even, never to, never to pay back evil for evil. And did not our Lord, our Master, provide us this very example and command us to follow in His footsteps? These verses are not in your sermon notes, but 1 Peter 2, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in His steps. He did not retaliate when He was insulted, nor threaten revenge when He suffered. He left His case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Look at Romans 12, verses 17 and 18, which is in your sermon notes. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. You may want to circle that word, never. Which means what? There are no exceptions. This is totally contrary to a Christ-like character, to what we're, how we're called to live. We're never to pay back evil for evil to anyone. Matter of fact, later in this same passage is if we're not to be overcome with evil, but we're to overcome evil with what? With good, with kindness, uh, with love. And then he says an interesting phrase that we're going to focus in on. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
And I, I love the practicality of the Scripture. It recognizes in interpersonal relationships, there's more than one person involved. You can only be responsible for your attitude, your actions. You can't control the other person. So he says, you follow me regardless. And you make every effort to be at peace as far as it's possible. Because you can't change or control the other person. You have to leave that in God's hands. But would you please underline that phrase, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. I believe that one phrase holds the key to following Christ's example of non-retaliation. The word respect, to be honest, does a very, very poor job at conveying the meaning of the Greek word, which is proneo. A better translation would be this. This would be a more literal translation of that word in that phrase. Think, think first of what is right in the sight of all men. In other words, this is what's being said. Listen now. God is saying, before you open your mouth, And use words as a weapon to retaliate. And you could use those words directly at the person who you have a problem with that may have hurt you, wounded you. Or you may go to others and stir up problems, talking about that person uh, uh, behind their back to others. So he said, before you do that, before you do that, think, think, think. And I need to think first about the response that would have the best chance to preserve unity. That's exactly what's being said here. Before you open your mouth, think, think. What would be the best response in this situation to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Proverbs 15, 28, very simple little verse. It says, a good man, I love this, A good man thinks before he speaks. A good man thinks before he speaks. Now, let me use the word think to build an acrostic to help you remember five questions to answer before you ever open your mouth in a heated situation. I wish I would have had time to get this room to get it in the sermon notes. There just wasn't room. I will be glad to put this on the website this next week. if you'd like to go there, we'll, we'll, you can find it. Uh, uh, of course, you try to, you're welcome to try to get this down on the column of your sermon notes. I'm going to have to move uh, quickly. But again, it'll be, I will get it on the website if you would like this. Because this has always been immensely helpful and practical for me. The letter T, here's the question. Before you speak, think, ask, is it truthful? What I'm about to say, is it really truthful? I don't want to embellish the truth. I don't want to minimize, you know, my own responsibility in this situation or justify. You know, is it truthful? Ephesians 4.25 says, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. So that's the first question I need to ask before I open my mouth. What I'm about to say, is it really truthful? I mean, before God, is it truthful? The letter H, you need to ask, What I'm about to say, is it helpful? Is it really going to be helpful? 
Ephesians 4.29. Listen to this. Do not use harmful words, but only helpful words. The kind that builds up and provides what is needed. So, what I'm about to say, is it really truthful? Before God Almighty, who knows all things, is this really going to be helpful? And then the letter I, is it inspirational? Is it inspirational? Colossians 4, verse 6. Listen, this is great. Be gracious in your speech. The goal, the objective It's to bring out the best in others in a conversation, not put them down, not cut them down. So what I'm about to say is, is it really going to be something that would inspire this person in in a positive direction? And then the letter N, and this is a great one to ask. What I'm about to say, is it really necessary? Is it necessary? Proverbs 17, verse 14 says, Starting a quarrel is like breaking a dam. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. So what I'm about to say, is it really necessary? Again, is it going to aid my goal of preserving unity? And then the letter K, the last letter, is it kind? What I'm about to say, is it kind? In other words, it's not important, only important what I say in those situations, but how do I say it? How do I say it? Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32, which is another one another verse that reinforces all of this. Let there be no more bitter resentment, no more anger, no more shouting, no more slander, and be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, tender Hearted. Forgiving each other is God in Christ also has forgiven you. So we've seen what? Humility. We've seen gentleness. We've seen uh, uh, patience. And now we come to forbearance. Forbearance, which is the fourth attitude, which creates a compassionate attitude that covers a multitude of sins. Forbearance, number four, which creates a compassionate attitude that covers a multitude of sins. Uh, forbearance, another, all of these words are very fascinating words in the Greek text. It's a word anikomi in the Greek text. And forbearance, simply put, is the action side of patience. Where patience refuses to retaliate, forbearance reaches out in forgiveness to the one who's offended me, to build a bridge and attempt to restore the relationship. How can we bring ourselves to forgive those who hurt us? By remembering how God forgave us. (laughs) Look at there in your notes, Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Bearing with one another. Here's another one another passage. Matter of fact, we'll be looking at this passage two weeks from today. And forgiving each other, forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now again, we're going to look at this matter of forgiveness very carefully in two weeks. We're going to define forgiveness, we're going to look how to forgive those who have hurt us, that have wounded us, that have hurt us. But at this point, it just suffice to say... It's obvious 
it is absolutely obvious that we're never going to preserve unity without practicing forgiveness. Because in a fallen world where we are all sinners, we're all a work in progress, every one of us is going to make mistakes. That's just a reality. It's a reality in marriage. It's a reality in church life. It's a reality in family. It's a reality in every realm of life. We're going to blow it. I'm going to blow it as your pastor. You're going to blow it as a church member. You're going to, you know, we're just we're going to mess up. So it's obvious if we don't learn how to forgive, we'll never practice and preserve unity. Look at the fifth attitude, which is love. Love which creates a com- committed attitude that is loyal to one another. Love which creates a committed attitude that is loyal to one another. Now listen very, very carefully. I don't have long, but what I'm about to say is very important. What is love at its very root? Love is a commitment. A commitment, listen now, a commitment never to give up on one another and to never let go of one another. Colossians 3.14 reads, And beyond all these things... Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That word bond is sondemos in the Greek, which, is the, which literally refers to the glue which binds us together. And, the, and it's a glue that God intended to bind us together permanently. And what is the glue that keeps us together? Love. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13 which is known as the love chapter, uh, that you're all familiar with, we're given 15 uh, characteristics of love, God's kind of love. Now, unlike most of our English translations, and don't miss this, this is such a powerful truth. Unlike our English translations in the Greek text of the New Testament, all 15 are verbs. Verbs. Action words. In other words, God describes love not in terms of feelings, but by painting a portrait of how love acts in interpersonal relationships. The point being, and this is the most practical thing you'll hear all day. This is where it gets the rubber meets the road. You learn love through the practice of love. There are no shortcuts. You learn love by the practice of love. Let me explain. Love is a choice you make, a choice that often runs contrary to your feelings, but also has the power to change your feelings. God has wired us as human beings in such a way that our wills control our actions, and our actions have the power to change our feelings. For example, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he did not intend intend for you to wait until you felt like loving your enemy before you reached out to him in love. This is why Jesus always put love in concrete terms. He says, hey, if somebody has cursed you with their mouth, you bless them. If someone hates you, you do good to them. If someone has persecuted you, misused you, get on your knees and pray for them. If you have an enemy, feed that enemy. Find a need and meet that need in their life. Now, you may be saying, no, no, wait, 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 hold it, Andy. 
if you knew the person I'm dealing with, you would know that I just can't love that person. No one else would be able to love that person. Let me ask you a question. Are you saying you cannot obey God? See, here's reality, and I'm just shooting straight with you and preaching to myself as much or more than anyone else. Reality is, it's not that you cannot, it's that you will not. And that is called disobedience. God commands you to love that difficult person in your life right now as a matter of obedience to Him, as an act of worship, whether you feel like it or not. He wants you to receive that person as His gift to you, to provide you the opportunity to learn to love others unconditionally as Jesus loved you, loved us. And the amazing thing is, when you step out on obedience, even when it's contrary to your feelings, and you invest in that person, where your treasure is what? There's your heart also. See, that's the key. That's the secret to get those feelings restored. And They're going to lag behind. But God says, you just obey, and as you obey, just trust me. The feelings will catch up. The feelings will catch up. Look at the sixth attitude, which is diligence, which creates a cooperative attitude that is dedicated to making it work. Whatever it takes, we've got to make this thing work. In other words, if God has glued us together, what He intended to be in a permanent relationship, and I'm not to run out when it gets tough, but I'm just hanging there, well, then it's obvious there's got to be this dedication. I'm just dedicated to hang in there and just make this thing work no matter what it costs. Ephesians 4, 3 reads, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The word diligent, again, another fascinating word, spadadso, interesting sounding word. Uh, it literally means a holy zeal demanding my full dedication. Listen to this Bible scholar, how he defined this verb, and he did it very vividly. His name is Marcus Barth. Here it is. It is hardly possible, he says, to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, sentiment, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. The imperative mood, it's a command, of the participle found in the Greek text excludes passivity, a wait-and-see attitude. Yours is the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You are to do it. I mean it. Such are the overtones in verse 3. Time's going quickly. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. It's not that we're going to have perfect agreement in every single issue. There's going to be differences. We need to demonstrate a love greater than our differences in the context. That agreement is we're going to love one another no matter what. And there'll be no divisions among you. In other words, we're not going to let those things divide us. We're going to use those things as opportunities to build bridges, to unite, to know harmony. 
But you be made complete in that same mind, that mind of Jesus that we're going to look at next Sunday in Philippians 2 and in the same judgment. And let me ask you, could this be the most ignored and violated command of God in the church today? Look at the seventh one as we close, which is peace. Peace which creates a comforting attitude that builds up and encourages one another. Ephesians 4.3 says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in, uh, uh, in the bond of peace. Look at there in your notes at Romans 14.19. Let, uh, so then let us pursue, circle that word pursue, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That word pursue in the Greek text, that word literally means, listen to this, this is great. That word literally means to run after and to run swiftly with all ounce of energy you have in order to catch some person or thing. In other words, to follow Jesus is to pursue peace. It's to be a bridge builder. So humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, love, diligence, and peace are the attitudes we are to demonstrate to one another in order to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Two questions as we close. Do you believe the truth you heard today? You can answer that just in your own heart. Do you believe the truth that you've heard today? Second question, okay, will you live the truth you heard today? And you, say, you ask, Pastor Andy, oh man, so much here. Where in the world do I start? Here's the suggestion. How about taking the focus off the other person or the circumstances you're, you're struggling with and start praying, God, change me. Change me. Tame me, break me, subdue me, bring me under your control so that Christ's attitudes can be displayed through me to others. And this will be a process. We're not going to arrive overnight. That's why we need patience. That's why we need forgiveness because it is a journey. It is a process. But the point is this should be our goal. And that's what we're being commanded to do here in this passage, to be diligent with every ounce of my being, to preserve the unity Christ created for us. And we do that by practicing these attitudes. As we extend the invitation today, I I trust God has spoken. I I always trust uh, that when uh, God's Word is taught and preached, that every person in the sanctuary will have some fresh encounter with God where he sort of puts his finger on a particular area. That, that, that's God saying, that's where I want you to focus right now, uh, to put this truth in practice. And, and that's how growth takes place, just one step at a time. And a lot of times it's a couple steps forward and then, yeah, a couple steps backwards as we, as we falter and struggle. But we keep our eyes on Jesus and we keep moving forward and keep growing in these particular graces So I trust you respond to the truth that you've heard, where God has convicted you related to your marriage or some issue in your family, or it could be your neighborhood or at work, uh, or, of course, here in the uh, church family. And then if you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Uh, what a beautiful message for you to hear because what you heard is what authentic Christianity is. And if you're not, if you're not a believer and if you have not seen this lived out by believers, forgive us. Forgive us. But this is what our Jesus is, and this is what our Jesus wants to do in our midst, and He wants to do in your life. So I'd invite you to put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you might know His grace forming these attitudes in your life as well. So please stand as the invitation is extended. I'll remain here if anyone has a public decision, but let's all be responding to the truth that we've heard.